out of Philly, this is the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. I am your host, Dr. R.T. Mullins from the University of Lucerne. I've got a lot for you today. Jared Mickelson tells me that I do not understand Aquinas. Ben Page tells me that I need to reimagine creation ex nihilo. And Thomas J. Ord tells me that I need to completely reject creation out of nothing. I also have an exciting announcement about a summer school in Spain. All this on today's episode... If you would like to support the show, you can donate money to my Patreon account or my coffee account. Any donation amount helps me out in so many ways. My student loan provider greatly appreciates all the support that people have already offered. If you have questions or topics that you'd like to hear on the show, you can send me a message at rtmullins.com. Ready or not, here I am taking on the world. Enjoy. One, does anyone understand divine simplicity? So Jared Mickelson published a paper in the Heathrop Journal in 2022 defending divine simplicity. I don't know if Jared listens to this show, but if you are, congratulations. I've only met Jared a few times. He was doing his PhD at St. Andrews whilst I was working there, but I didn't really get a lot of chance to interact with him. Anyway, for some reason, Jared's paper was making the rounds on social media this week, and people wanted to know my thoughts on the paper. I'm, I'm going to give you a few of my opinions in this first act. So Mickelson wants to defend divine simplicity from a set of standard analytic objections. He has three objections in mind. First, divine simplicity fails to cohere with God having accidental predicates like creator and Lord. Second, the divine simplicity makes God a property. And then third, the dreaded modal collapse. So I'm going to ignore the second objection, because I myself have published against this second objection. Divine simplicity explicitly says that God cannot have any attributes, cannot have any properties, cannot have imminent universals, tropes, or, you know, whatnot. So it's really difficult to see how you can get from the claim that God does not have any properties to the claim that God is a property. So I'm not going to say anything further about that objection. So Mickelson is explicitly interested in analytic philosophers and theologians who are neoclassical theists. He wants to focus on neoclassical theists who are critical of divine simplicity. Well, this raises a good question. Who are these neoclassical theists that Mickelson has in mind? He gives a list of people. Alvin Plantinga, Nicholas Wolterstorff, Thomas Morris, William Lane Craig, John Feinberg, Eugen Nagasawa, Stephen Davis, Ryan Mullins, ooh, ooh, ooh. and and William Rowe. So first off, Jared, uh, thank you for putting me on the list with those guys. I mean, that's that's pretty cool, you know. Um, Now, second, um, William Rowe is quite famously not a neoclassical theist. He kind of like wrote a whole bunch of stuff defending atheism. So maybe next time, don't put a well-known atheist on the list of neoclassical theists. It's, It's just a suggestion. Especially since this paper is really big on accusing everyone of misreading Aquinas. Apparently, there's this widespread inability to read Aquinas properly. Now, if you're going to accuse people of lacking basic reading comprehension skills, you might not want to put a famous atheist like William Rowe on the list of neoclassical theists. Anyway, let's look at the first objection. Here is a quote from Jared Mickelson. He says, Ryan Mullins asserts Augustine, Boethius, Lombard, and Aquinas all deny extrinsic accidental properties of God. For Mullins, to speak of such properties is problematic for divine simplicity, insofar as they introduce diversity and potential into God and imply there are other ways he can be. Let me pause right there. Um, 
I'm not the one who pointed out it's problematic. It was proponents of divine simplicity who did. But all right. anyway, uh, Mickelson carries on. He says, Further, the attempt by classical theologians like Thomas or Augustine to respond to these worries is theologically and spiritually catastrophic. On Mullen's reading, for classical theologians, these relations are not real divine properties, but are merely mental, which implies that, and then he quotes me saying, God is not really in a causal relation with the universe, but only in our minds. The atheist will be happy to say that the universe's causal dependence upon God exists in the minds of believers only. Yeah, I I totally did say that. Yeah. Um, Anyway, Mickelson carries on. He says, according to Mullins, the believer at worship is praising God for things which are not really true of God, but refer only to the believer's mental states. One difficulty with these claims is that none of these classical figures use the phrase extrinsic accidental properties. Okay, so that's Mickelson. Here's what I think about this. To start, I do not assert that Augustine, Boethius, Lombard, and Aquinas deny extrinsic accidental properties of God. I quote them. I quote them saying that. There is a difference between a bald assertion and providing lengthy quotations and exegesis of people saying those things that they did in fact say. I also cite loads of medieval scholars who agree with this reading. So did these classical figures use the phrase extrinsic accidental properties? Well, of course not. They did not speak English. But they definitely did have that concept in mind when they speak in their own language. And this is not a controversial statement from me. This is a fairly standard claim from medieval scholars. Augustine is very explicit about the problem of accidental relational changes and says that properties of Lord and Creator are examples of the sort of accidental properties that one would acquire through relational change. In case you're wondering, relational changes are extrinsic accidental changes. Sometimes these are called Cambridge changes in the contemporary jargon. So Augustine, he is very explicit that God does not undergo those kinds of changes because God is not really related to the world, and thus God does not have those kinds of accidental properties. This is a very standard reading of Augustine, so I don't really feel the force of whatever point Mickelson is trying to make. Now, from here, Mickelson tries to get in my head. He tries to get in my head by discussing how apparently I understand the idea of intrinsic and extrinsic change. Apparently, I have in mind some complicated possible world semantics, a la David Lewis. Now, I was unaware that I had this in mind, especially since I don't really like David Lewis's metaphysics, and I openly argue against lots of Lewis's views in print. But, you know, whatever. I I thought, what I thought I was doing, I thought I was simply following Augustine and Peter Lombard's own understanding of accidental relational changes and that of what the Augustinian commentators were saying. After all, Augustine did say the word relational. And so did Boethius and Lombard, but, but that doesn't matter. That does not matter because you see, you, you see, I made a grave mistake, according to Mickelson. I have misunderstood Aquinas. Now ignore the fact that I'm looking at Augustine. I have misunderstood Aquinas. You see, when Aquinas gives his commentary on Peter Lombard's problem of relational accidents, apparently Aquinas really had in mind that these accidents are intrinsic to God. I don't know. Maybe I was completely mistaken in what I thought I was doing. Maybe I really was just taking in all of David Lewis's ideas through some sort of like cultural osmosis. Now, basically, the discussion from Mickelson's paper, it does this thing that I've encountered many times before. And this is basically what most of the papers in the international blog of systematic theology do. What? Hang on. What? Rodney, what? What? Oh, sorry. Rodney's pointing out that it is called the International Journal of Systematic Theology. Rodney, are you sure it's not a blog? Okay, we'll fact check that later. We'll fact check it later. Okay, I got to get on with the show. 
Anyway, here, here is the strategy that I see over and over. Take any argument you want. It does not matter. Just any argument you want. Someone like me will give an exegesis and an articulation of some classical claim, followed by a critique of that classical claim. What the Thomist does is ignore the exegesis and argument and just respond by rearticulating and just reasserting the Thomistic view. Well, I'm sorry, but I do not need a rearticulation of the Thomistic view. I already had all of that in my original papers and books. What I need, what I need to see is a cogent response to the argument. Okay, let's look at the modal collapse. Mickelson's paper gives a paragraph that kind of summarizes the modal collapse objection. It's more of a summary of the conclusion of the modal collapse objection, and I see this a lot. I've given a modal collapse objection with 10 premises. Each premise has a number next to them. That way you can identify which premise in the argument you want to reject. But instead of doing that, I keep getting these Thomists to either articulate a completely different argument and attribute it to me, or they make up a premise in my argument, or they refuse to state the argument entirely. And so Mickelson does not articulate my argument and does not even mention which premise in the argument he is wanting to reject. And then from there, the discussion, it, it gets kind of weird. Uh, Mickelson accuses analytic thinkers of widely endorsing David Hume's theory of causation. Then he says that analytics need to make explicit which theory of causation they are affirming. Well, I'm sorry, but I, I do not affirm David Hume's theory. Like most of the classical tradition, I affirm that efficient causation is productive. I've actually you know, defended that in print, but whatever. Um, you know, it, it's actually the case that there are a lot of contemporary analytics who do this. Richard Swinburne is one. He's pretty clear about his theory of causation. Uh, William Lane Craig is another. You know, he's written a whole lot about what he thinks about causation. Uh, I, I just examined a PhD dissertation by Randy Everest on the metaphysics of powers and God. What Randy is interacting with is the very serious interest in the metaphysics of powers and real causation that exists among contemporary analytics. So here's the thing. In my arguments, I'm trying to grant the classical tradition as much of their own metaphysics as they can. Why? Well, because I find a lot of the different aspects of the classical metaphysics plausible. Not all of it, of course, but, you know, a fair bit. Now, after this sort of odd statement from Mickelson trying to get in my head, he goes on to point out that I did not cite Aquinas' own version of the modal collapse objection in the paper that I co-authored with Shannon Bird. Of course, I do cite Aquinas on this in other writings, but, but I did not give that citation in my paper with Shannon Bird. Shannon, Shannon, if you're listening, you and I have made the grave mistake, a grave mistake that indicates that we have misunderstood Aquinas. Granted, it's not as big of a mistake as calling a very, very famous atheist a neoclassical theist, but I digress. Mickelson goes on to say that Shannon and I have misunderstood Aquinas because Aquinas could be understood as saying that creation itself is extrinsic to God. Now, of course, Shannon and I know that. Uh, we actually say that very explicitly in our paper. We have a whole section on this in our paper. We point out that there is the intrinsic and extrinsic readings of what classical theists might have meant, and we clearly say that we are focusing on the intrinsic reading. Why? Well, because commentators like W. Matthews Grant and Thomas Ward explicitly say that the intrinsic view is the most popular view in the classical tradition. And because, and this is very important, and because Shannon and I are not arguing against some newfangled form of Thomism, we are arguing against classical theism at large. I have been very intentional about looking at the entire classical theistic tradition because I was tired of people saying, you misunderstood Aquinas. So I started playing a little game about 10 years ago, maybe even a little bit longer ago. Instead of quoting Aquinas all the time, I quote a million other people who say the exact same thing as Aquinas. 
And then I sit back and wait for people to say, oh, but you misunderstood Aquinas. Ah, yes, yes, my critique of John Philoponus. Yes, my critique of Catherine Rogers is somehow me misunderstanding Aquinas. Yes, of course, of course. How could I be so blind? I don't know. I'm not going to keep going on like this. I have a clear set of arguments throughout my publications. What I need people to do is identify which premise of the argument they wish to reject and then say why they reject it. I'm tired of all this no one understands Aquinas but me rhetoric. The moral philosopher John Hare made fun of Thomas for doing this over 20 years ago. Things have not changed much since then. All right, act two, creation out of nothing. So I want to discuss the doctrine of creation ex nihilo. Ben Page has an interesting paper critiquing me and William Lane Craig. There were some internet Thomists who were trying to use Ben's paper to make fun of me and say that Ben has like totally destroyed me. They were accusing me of ignoring this incredibly important paper. Well, let me tell you a little secret. I did not ignore Ben's paper. I actually gave Ben a copy of my forthcoming book manuscript so he could clean up a section of the paper. I was one of the reviewers for the paper, and I recommended that the paper be published. Why? Well, because Ben did a good job at clarifying the argument that Craig and I have against the compatibility of timelessness and creation ex nihilo. Ben offers an interesting way for someone to try to reject that argument. It's the sort of paper that deserves a professional response. That's why I recommended that the paper be published. So when you see internet Thomists on Twitter demanding that I stop ignoring this paper, Tell them that they have once again demonstrated that they do not know what they are talking about. So here is my argument against timelessness and creation ex nihilo in a nutshell. The doctrine of creation ex nihilo says that there's some prior state of affairs where God exists all alone. God is all alone. I call this God's pre-creation moment. Sometimes the medievals call this pre-eternity. So you have this pre-creation moment where God is all alone. And then there's this state of affairs where God exists with creation. What Craig and I do is argue that this is incompatible with divine timelessness. It is incompatible because you have God all alone and then God with a bunch of cosmic stuff. That is clearly a change in the sum total facts of reality and clearly a change in God. Not simply a merely relational change, but an intrinsic change because God is causing and knowing and doing all sorts of stuff that he was not doing before. I have a large network of arguments to get to this conclusion, but Ben does something very clever. He focuses in on that claim that God is all alone. He tries to argue that the classical theist does not have to interpret creation ex nihilo in that way. What Ben tries to do is say that creation ex nihilo does not have to mean that there is some state of affairs where God exists all alone. And that's very clever. It would undermine one of the kinds of arguments that I run against divine timelessness. It would not undermine all of my arguments, but it would undermine an important set of arguments. Okay, here's my reply. So creation ex nihilo does have to say that there is a state of affairs where God exists all alone. Why? Well, because that's how it's been understood in the Jewish, Christian, Islamic, Hindu, and Buddhist philosophical traditions. Sure, there's this brief moment where Aquinas tries to fudge on this in order to avoid condemnation, but one random guy fudging on this is nothing more than one random guy fudging on this to avoid condemnation. 
If you look at Richard C. Dale's book on the eternity of the world, theologians during and after Aquinas' life thought Aquinas was deeply mistaken for fudging on this issue. Some even use this fudge as further reason to condemn the views of Aquinas as just plain dumb. Now, I'm not going to do that. I, I, I don't have the Catholic authorities breathing down my neck, so I cannot judge Aquinas too harshly for fudging on some of this stuff. Also, in several of his writings, he very clearly says that creation ex nihilo involves a state of affairs where God exists all alone. Anyway, let me give you a very brief history of creation ex nihilo, focusing on this point about God existing all alone. When you're looking at the history of philosophy in the, in the West and the East, there's a fairly standard definition of what it means to begin to exist. Something A begins to exist if it is preceded by non-existence. You see this endorsed throughout the different religious traditions. The claim from creation ex nihilo is that the universe began to exist. Since it began to exist, it must be preceded by non-existence. That entails that prior to that, there is God all alone. People who affirm creation ex nihilo, they're very explicit about this. People who reject creation ex nihilo are also very explicit about this. For example, philosophers like Ibn Taymiyyah, Ramanuja, and Thomas J. Ord affirm a doctrine of eternal creation on which God has always existed with some cosmic created stuff. On eternal creation, God never exists all alone. These thinkers say that they reject creation out of nothing and say very clearly that they reject the view that God ever existed all alone. I'll come back to Tom Ord's critique of the, in the final act of this episode. My point right now is this. One of the main differences between creation ex nihilo and eternal creation is over whether or not God existed all alone. Now, according to Tertullian, creation ex nihilo means that God summoned the universe into existence when it had previously not existed. If there were some like eternal cosmic stuff co-eternal alongside with God, Tertullian thinks that the majesty of God would be denied. Origen of Alexandria makes similar remarks. Origen says, and I quote, God is one who created and set in order all things and who, when nothing existed, caused the universe to be. Commenting on the Christian understanding of creation ex nihilo from the 2nd to the 4th centuries, David Ferguson explains the doctrine as follows. Ferguson says, Nor can the world be described as eternal. The life of God is prior to the life of the world, even if this cannot be expressed as a temporal priority. We cannot set the world as co-eternal alongside the triune being. Alexander Brody, he's a medieval scholar. Uh, he makes a similar statement about the late medieval understanding of creation ex nihilo. He says, In the high Middle Ages, all the major theologians of the Christian West teach that God created our world ex nihilo. That is, that first there is God and no world, and then, by an act of divine will, there is a world which is, in some sense, at a distance from, and therefore other than, God. Now, as mentioned before, both proponents and critics agree that creation ex nihilo involves God's pre-creation moment. For example, Avicenna uses the pre-creation moment in several arguments to demonstrate that creation ex nihilo is incoherent, and thus one should instead affirm the eternality of the cosmos. Sajigon disagrees and says that it is the doctrine of eternal creation. That's the thing that's actually incoherent. He agrees that the very notion of being created, he, he thinks it he argues that it implies an absolute beginning, and that the creator must be prior to the beginning of that which is created. If the universe is eternal, then God cannot be prior to the universe, in which case God cannot have created the universe. 
So you've got this disagreement here between uh, Avicenna and, and Sajigon, but the underlying commitment in both thinkers is that creation ex nihilo involves the created order beginning to exist, and whatever begins to exist cannot be co-eternal with a god who lacks a beginning. If one affirms that the created order is co-eternal with God, then one has abandoned the doctrine of creation ex nihilo. According to Sam Liebens, creation ex nihilo can be understood as the affirmation that, and I quote, the universe was created by God at some point in time, perhaps the first moment in time, before which there was nothing except God. Now, now according to Liebens, this is distinct from a, a doctrine of eternal creation, which Liebens defines as, the universe has always existed, with no beginning, it is nevertheless God's creation. He is eternally creating it, giving it being. Now look, that should be more than enough to convince people that this is the correct understanding of creation ex nihilo versus eternal creation. But here's the thing. I know some of you listening, I know you're kind of dumb. I know you're kind of dense. So let me go a little bit further. Let's look at Boethius. Boethius says, Now this uh, religion, which is called Christian and Catholic, is founded chiefly on the following assertions. From all eternity, that is, before the world was established, and so before all that is meant by time began, there has existed one divine substance of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that's Boethius. Uh, Let's look at a Jewish philosopher, Moses Maimonides. So here's what Moses Maimonides says. He says, In the beginning, God alone existed and nothing else. Even time itself is among things created. For time depends on motion, on an accident in things which move, and the things upon whose motion time depends are themselves created beings, which have passed from non-existence into existence. We say that God existed before the creation of the universe, although the verb existed appears to imply the notion of time. We also believe that he existed in infinite space of time before the universe was created. But in these cases, we do not mean time in its true sense. We only use the term to signify something analogous or similar to time. Okay, so that's, that's Moses. Uh, now let's look at the Islamic philosopher Al-Ghazali, because he, he makes the same kind of claim. He says, God brought the universe into being after its non-existence and made it something after it had been nothing, since from eternity he alone was existent and there was nothing along with him. Okay, I'm not going to belabor my point any further, so let me just cut straight to the chase. Here is how I respond to Ben Page's way of escaping my arguments. Ben wants to say that we can just understand creation ex nihilo in a completely different way from what everyone has always meant by that term. I say we cannot do that because then we lose the well-established distinction between creation ex nihilo and and eternal creation because we're just making the two terms mean the exact same thing. All right, Rodney, play me some Slayer. Wait, what, what, what is this? Rodney? No, Rodney, I, I said play Slayer. No, I did not say play something that slays. I said play Slayer. Yes, of course I know that TLC slays. I'm not some uncultured idiot. No, look, look, we, look, okay, we, we agree. We all agree on the cultural importance of TLC. No, I don't care what Thomas Williams and Imasani were saying on Twitter the other day. I mean, Williams, he's an expert on, on John Dunn Scotus, but we're talking, you know, he was talking trash about TLC the other day. All right, you know, kill the music. Kill, kill the music. Kill the music. Okay, look, look, Rodney. All right, take a note on this. Take a note on this. Look, Elijah Hess's wife, she she made a special request that we get Dr. Imasani on the show more often. And I'm willing to bring her on the show more uh, under one condition. Under one condition. Dr. Sani needs to fully recognize the cultural significance of TLC. 
Even the BBC had an article last week on the importance of like of waterfalls. You know, tell, no, look, look, tell Emma she cannot come back on the show until she admits, until she fully admits that, uh, that TLC is an American treasure. An American treasure. An American treasure, okay? All right, then she can come back on the show. Okay, what are we doing right now? I'm sorry, I got lost. Oh, right, I need to talk about Spain. Spain, okay. Yeah, the Universidad de Navarra is hosting a summer school and an international conference in June 2024. The theme is models of God and providence, in particular classical theism and neoclassical theism. This is taking place in Pamplona, Spain, uh, and I'm going to be giving a series of lectures for the summer school. And so will Jean-Baptiste Guillon, uh, Augustin Equivaria, and Ignacio Silva. All four of us are going to be teaching for the summer school. Then there's going to be an international conference on God and Providence. I mean, the lineup for the conference, it's, it's pretty cool. So everybody I've already mentioned, you know, we're all going to be speaking for the conference too. We also, we're going to have Chiro De Florio, Aldo Frigiro, Daniel DeHaan, Natalia Ding, and Patrick Todd. Like that's, I mean, that, that's pretty awesome. That's an amazing lineup, right? I've got all the details on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, just go, go like check it out if you're interested in attending. Uh, and if you want to apply for the summer school, the summer school is primarily aimed at PhD students, postdocs, and early career scholars. The deadline for the applications is the 15th of January, 2024. So you need to apply right now. Defending Creation Ex Nihilo. So as I mentioned before, Thomas J. Ord rejects the doctrine of creation ex nihilo in favor of eternal creation. Now, according to Ord, creation ex nihilo means that God once existed all alone, and Ord rejects that. What Tom affirms instead is that there is an everlasting succession of universes. As one universe starts to die, God creates a new universe from its ashes. This is pretty similar to what you see in different Indian philosophers like Ramanuja. In the new T.N.T. Clark Handbook of Suffering and the Problem of Evil, Ord lays out nine reasons for rejecting creation ex nihilo. I want to quickly respond to some of those arguments, um, but let me first just state Tom's nine arguments. He puts uh, numbers next to them, you know, uh, so you can easily identify the arguments. So if you're a Thomist listening, you're going to want to identify which premise of Tom's arguments you're rejecting. Anyway, let me just state the arguments and then I'll go through one by one my own responses to them. So number one, the theoretical problem. Absolute nothingness cannot be conceived. It's intellectually impossible to fathom. Number two, the historical problem. Creation out of nothing was first proposed by Gnostics. Most forms of Gnosticism assume creation is inherently evil, so a good God does not act in relation to evil creation. Now, most theists today think creation is intrinsically good. Okay. All right. Uh, number three, the empirical problem. We have no evidence that our universe originally came into being from nothing. 
While we ought to affirm the Big Bang, science doesn't tell us from out of what the Big Bang came. Number four, the creation at an instant problem. We have no evidence that creatures or creaturely entities can emerge instantaneously from absolute nothingness. Out of nothing comes nothing, is the old saying, ex nihil nihil fit. Number five, the solitary power problem. Creation out of nothing assumes God once acted all alone. But power is a social concept, and only meaningful in relation to others outside the powerful actor. Number six, the errant revelation problem. A god who can create something from absolutely nothing could guarantee an unambiguous, inerrant revelation. But such revelations do not exist. Number seven, the evil problem. If God once could create from absolutely nothing, God would essentially retain that ability. But a loving God with this ability would be morally culpable for failing to use it to prevent genuine evil. Number eight, the empire problem slash the status quo problem. The power necessary to create from nothing supports the idea that God causes or allows the establishment of empires. This God apparently wants the status quo with all of its injustices. And then number nine, the biblical problem. The Bible does not explicitly support creation from nothing. Writers speak of God creating out of something, like water, the deep, chaos, invisible things, and so on. Okay, so that is Tom's nine arguments. Let me go through these one by one and just offer you know, very quick responses. Like, what I'm about to say is most certainly not a full rebuttal of Tom. I mean, please do not think that my sarcastic replies from me on a podcast episode are somehow a full rebuttal. I mean, come on, really. I mean, Tom knows that my sarcastic replies are not full rebuttals, and so should the rest of you at this point. Anyway, number one, the theoretical problem. Absolute nothingness cannot be conceived. It's intellectually impossible to fathom. Okay, here's my reply. I agree to some extent, just, just a bit. I mean, absolute nothingness, it is kind of difficult to fathom. Um, we can state absolute nothing as a universal negation. And various logicians, they've explored the different semantics of you know how to talk about absolute nothingness. But it doesn't really matter. The doctrine of creation out of nothing says that first there was God all alone. That is not a complete and absolute nothingness. That's God all alone. So the theoretical problem, it's just irrelevant. Number two, the historical problem. Creation out of nothing was first proposed by Gnostics. Most forms of Gnosticism assume creation is inherently evil. So a good God does not, like, you know, does not, doesn't create because he doesn't want to relate to an evil creation. And then, of course, like a lot of theists today, they're going to think, well, hang on, I, th I think creation is intrinsically good. So Tom's like, yeah, there's a historical problem here. Here's my reply. Uh, two things. First, I don't think that's historically accurate. I mean, Marcus Bachmule and others talk about how the doctrine of creation ex nihilo predates Christianity. So that means it's going to predate Gnosticism. Second, uh, just say Tom's right. Let's just grant him that. Well, who cares? I mean, who cares? Look, I, I really like this point from Tom. Uh, pointing out that your favorite doctrine had a bunch of early heretics supporting it. Like, that's really funny. I mean, I think that I, re I really do think that's comedy gold in the right audience. It definitely makes your average Christian theologian deeply uncomfortable. And uh, look, I'll, I'll do the same thing. I love pointing out this kind of stuff. So, for example, I love pointing out that, like, Athanasius, he had a God with a bod Christology and how that was condemned at Chalcedon. I, I love pointing out that Cyril and Nestorius had the same three-part Christology. And then what I do, I do it. I do it because it makes some theologians uncomfortable. And it also, it gets some of those theologians, it gets them off their high horse. You know, it, it forces them to actually engage with the arguments. 
we do not have time for hero worship in Christian theology. We need to get straight to the arguments. So, so I really actually, so I actually really love like Thomas historical problem for that reason, because I think it's, it's hilarious. I think it's very funny. Um, but ultimately who cares? Like really who cares? Like nothing about the doctrine of creation ex nihilo itself says, nor obviously entails that creation is evil because it really depends what kind of God is doing the creating. Most people, they're going to say, well, it's a good God who's doing the creating. So this point about Gnosticism, eh, you know, you just shrug your shoulders and go, eh, who cares? Who cares? Okay, number three, the empirical problem. We have no evidence that our universe originally came into being from nothing. While we ought to affirm the Big Bang, science does not tell us from what out of the Big Bang came. Okay, here's my reply. So what? We do not have empirical evidence that the universe came out of the ashes of a prior universe either. What I am saying is that we do not have any empirical evidence for Tom's doctrine of eternal creation. In fact, it, it does not seem like we could have any empirical evidence. When we trace things back to the singularity, the laws of nature as we know them completely break down, and thus our ability to make extrapolations based on our understanding of the laws becomes impossible. So neither creation ex nihilo nor Tom's everlasting series of universes have the empirical evidence of the sort that Tom is looking for. Number four, the creation at an instant problem. We have no evidence that creatures or creaturely entities can emerge instantaneously from absolute nothingness. Out of nothing comes nothing, is the old saying, ex nihil nihil fit. And again I say, so what? We do know what it's like for agents to produce things. Uh, and then further, I mean, the old saying of ex nihil nihil fit, it does not apply to a situation where God exists. The saying applies when we are talking about absolutely nothing, not even God. So I think this argument from Tom it needs a bit more work. I think it's missing the mark at the moment. But, you know, there might be a way to develop this into a serious problem. Number five, the solitary power problem. Creation out of nothing assumes God once acted all alone. But power is a social concept and only meaningful in relation to others outside the powerful actor. Here's my reply. I just don't buy this sort of postmodern view of power. I just don't. I don't see what's wrong with the idea of God existing all alone and necessarily and essentially possessing maximal power, especially when I combine it with an incredibly plausible causal principle that causes are prior to their effects. Just because some POMO philosophers love to talk about how power is social, that does not move me. Not one bit. Of course, just because I sarcastically make fun of like POMO philosophers, I mean, that's not, that's not going to move Tom either. Let me, let's be pretty clear about that. So Tom and I, we stand together unmoved by one another. Number six, the errant revelation problem. A God who can create something from absolutely nothing could guarantee an unambiguous, inerrant revelation, but such revelation does not exist. Uh, okay, here, here's, here's the thing. I don't see why cr God creating out of nothing would entail in an errant revelation. I mean, sure, like it might seem like God's got the power to give an unambiguous, inerrant revelation, but it really depends what you think God's reasons are for creating the universe. I mean, when you, when you look at Richard Swinburne and John Hick, when you look at their theodicies, the claim is that God must create an ambiguous universe where friendship with God is not coerced. If God made himself too obvious, then our, then our moral and our religious development, it would be coerced. But God's love is not supposed to be coercive, as Tom himself assures me. 
So I don't quite see why creation ex nihilo by itself leads to the prediction that God would be coercive. Now, now look, I mean, I know that Tom does not think that Swinburne and, and Hicks' theodicies are sufficient. He doesn't like them. Uh, if you want the full story on Tom's views on that, and you want to see his critiques of those views, you need to check out his books like The Uncontrolling Love of God. Number seven, the evil problem. If God once could create from absolutely nothing, well, well, then God would essentially retain that ability. But a loving God with this ability would be morally culpable for failing to use it to prevent genuine evil. Okay, so with this and with the previous problem, I'm not really going to say too much. Uh, if, if you want the full story of my response, you need to check out one of my earlier episodes on God's creation of friendly universes. In that episode, I attempt to address some of Tom's worries about, about evil and the hiddenness of God. That episode is actually, it's basically a sneak peek of my forthcoming little book about a big God. Now, the publisher the other day told me they think this book is going to be released in the summer of 2024. I really hope so, because I'm just tired of waiting. I really want you guys to have this book in your hands. Like, I'm, I'm really excited to see what you think of it. Uh, number eight, the empire problem, the status quo problem. The power necessary to create from nothing supports the idea that God causes or allows the establishment of empires. This God apparently wants the status quo with all of its injustices. There's definitely like a sense in which God causes or allows for the establishment of empires. But I think the same is true in Tom's view. God everlastingly and necessarily causes the law-like regularity and autonomy that are prerequisites for empires. The difference is that on creation ex nihilo, God only contingently causes the prerequisites for empires. Now, unless, of course, like if you're going to affirm like occasionalism or concurrence, I mean, if you're going to affirm occasionalism or concurrence, then you are saying that God contingently and directly causes the empires themselves. And Tom and I both want to go, no, just just no. Let's let's just reject that. Stop it. Just just stop. Just stop it. Here's what Tom wants to say. He wants to say that if God creates out of nothing, then God has the power to stop empires. Well, look, that, that just takes us back to the problem of evil. So this empire problem, the status quo problem, it's not a unique argument. It's just some flavor, some variety of the problem of evil. So there's nothing unique here. Number nine, the biblical problem. The Bible does not explicitly support creation from nothing. Writers speak of God creating out of something, water, the deep, chaos, invisible things, and so on. Here is my reply. <sighs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the Bible does not explicitly support creation from nothing. I mean, your average biblical scholar will say that the biblical evidence for creation out of nothing, it's ambiguous. Uh, Tom quotes a bunch of biblical scholars who say that the evidence is just simply not there at all. Uh, I mean, if I wanted to, I could quote some biblical scholars who say that the biblical evidence is somewhat there. But when I really look at all of the things, I mean, I, I think the biblical evidence, it's not as strong as I would like it to be. It's not very decisive. It really isn't. It's just not that strong. However, there are certain passages that get overlooked in these debates. In particular, Psalm 90, verse 2. Before God brought forth the heavens and the earth, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. That certainly sounds like God's pre-creation moment. Uh, and in fact, um, the biblical scholar Gershom Bren, he comments on this verse by saying that the earliest time mentioned in Scripture is that of the reality prior to creation. It looks like God's pre-creation moment. But of course, this would simply be one verse indicating creation out of nothing. 
it's not a full knockdown biblical argument for creation ex nihilo. So I think I'm just going to have to concede this point to Tom. And there you have it, another episode of the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. Stay tuned for more episodes on philosophical theology. 